The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Today's passage will be from Philippians 2, verse 1 to 4. Philippians 2, verse 1 to 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, good morning. It's good to be together as we observe our second week of Global Focus. And our theme these last two weeks, last week and now this week, is that we are all sent. Every Christian is called by God, sent out by God, to be disciples who make disciples. This disciple-making takes place in every sphere, with our children and grandchildren, with classmates and colleagues and neighbors. And so we're all sent, and then some of us are specifically sent to minister in a vocational way, in a cross-cultural way, in missions. And so with this thematic focus that we've had of we're all sent, this morning we're not going to be doing what we've historically done where we've given an invitation at the end of the sermon and called people forward and had them stand if they're thinking about cross-cultural missions. That's important, and we want to continue to call out some from among us to send out to the nations. And if that's you this morning, if God stirs your heart, we want you to talk with Nick Whitehead, who preached last week. But instead, this morning, we're asking God, in light of this theme, that we're all sent to increase our collective evangelistic zeal for God. I believe a rising tide for the glory of God will lift all the boats of evangelism here at home, missions abroad, and then partnership in sending in a manner worthy of God. And so our hope this morning is not just to call out one or two or three that might think about serving overseas, but that there would be 1,200 of us and everyone watching online who would be recommitted to being disciple-making disciples, those who make disciples of those around us that go out into our community and to the ends of the earth to proclaim the glories of Christ. So that's what we're doing this morning. Would you join me as we pray? Father, We ask that you would come now in the power of your spirit and help us to see wondrous things from your word so that we would be a changed people. Cause your word to cut through bone and marrow, piercing our hearts so that we would be convicted, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened, that we would be built up, and that your church would be conformed to the image of Jesus. Oh, we long for that. Give us the very compassion of Christ this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been in church for any period of time, you know that conflicts and disagreements in church are both commonplace and unfortunate. They're 
several things, many things in the life of a church that pull at the fabric of love and unity that we share with one another. As I was preparing this, I was researching some church conflicts and came across a few silly examples. One church had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Good thing Dan's clean-shaven or wherever Dan walked off to. The church argued, another church argued over whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. (laughs) One church had a dispute because the Lord's Supper had cranberry grape juice, a blend, instead of just grape juice. Another church had an argument over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. I'm dying to figure out how that one turned out. That's for all those who like dad jokes. One church disagreed over using the term potluck and instead preferred pot blessing. And we know here at Bethlehem, it would be pot providence, right? (laughs) These are funny examples because I can't share the, the heartbreaking real examples that would hit much closer to home. Situations that are sad, departures that are unnecessary, and frustrations and anger that is disproportionate to the very issues that would be at hand. Selfishness destroys unity. Pride and arrogance undermine harmony. Envy and rivalry stifle any hope of trust and cooperation. And Paul is well aware of this dynamic. We've seen in Philippians already, he says, some people preach in order to spite me out of envy and rivalry. They want to minimize my ministry and advance their own. And so we've seen it in Philippians. They're a normal church, just like every other normal church. They have opposition from the outside, and then they have temptations to division from within. And so in our passage, Paul is continuing his exhortation that started in chapter 1, verse 27, conduct yourselves or live in a manner worthy of the gospel. As you stand firm against outside opposition, but now he says, in light of the temptation to divide from within, be unified, love each other. So the summary statement of what Paul's doing here in verses 1 through 4 could be, Lifted out right from the pages of Ephesians, where he says this in Ephesians 4, 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what he wants to see. And so, my main point this morning is because we have been united by Christ, be united in the gospel with fellow believers. Because we are united to Christ and by Christ, be united in the gospel with fellow believers. Very simple, but it's easier said than done. Paul's saying, strive to love and build up and care for each other as those who have shared in the greatest things. So the image that comes to my mind is that of emperor penguins. I don't know if you've ever seen those documentaries, but they're scattered across the ice. There's hundreds and thousands and perhaps hundreds of thousands of emperor penguins, and temperatures fall below negative 58, and winds blow as high as 125 miles per hour, and it's freezing cold, and the sun doesn't come up for months, and so how do they survive? They cooperate. They're unified. 
that they huddle together so that only some of them get the worst of the winds and then they rotate as time goes along so that no one penguin gets the brunt of the winter force the whole time. Without this cooperation, they die. I don't think the Apostle Paul knew penguins, but if he did, he would say, be like them. Have this mindset, this attitude, this pattern of thinking that would strengthen the church, disciple one another, and then be ready to launch out those to the nation. So our plan this morning is we're going to see three different things from verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 is one long, complex sentence in the Greek. And it's Paul's appeal for unity and mutual care. So the very first thing we see in verse 1 is the foundation of unity. The foundation of unity. So let me read verse 1 for us again. Look with me in your Bibles. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. We'll pause there. Paul's use of if isn't to convey doubt but rather certainty. So he's saying, as you have surely, or assuming you've experienced encouragement in Christ, we, we talk that way, or the Bible talks that way very often. An example would be Romans eight thirty one. He says, if God is for us, and he's saying, because he is, who can be against us? And so here he's saying, if there's any, any encouragement in Christ, meaning because you've experienced great encouragement in Christ and, any, and great comfort from love and any participation in the Spirit. And now he turns to give the call in verse 2. Now the first reminder, any encouragement in Christ, is a reminder that all believers have experienced encouragement by being united to Christ. So in Christ, referring to salvation and union, and we're to be encouraged by remembering what God has done in saving us. So it would be him saying something like this. Remember what we share in Jesus, that we've been chosen and justified and forgiven and reconciled and cleansed by his blood. That's what he's doing here in that first phrase. And he's saying, this is true, not just of you, but of you and all those who are in this church together. That's what he wants us to key in on. This is true even of that one prickly person that rubs you the wrong way, that one person you have a hard time with. The basis for unity is our union with Christ. The basis for our unity is our union with Christ. We're already united to Jesus, so therefore maintain the very unity that Christ has accomplished by his blood. Embody and practice the very unity that has been accomplished by Jesus that exists in heaven now here on earth. That's why Jesus says, go be reconciled to your brother before you offer gifts at the altar in Matthew 5, 24. Our relationship with God ought to inform our relationship with others. And in the same way, our relationship with others can hinder our relationship with God. You remember that when we looked at that in 1 Peter? He says to husbands, love your wives lest it hinder your prayers. So your horizontal relationships affect your vertical relationship and your vertical relationship informs how you relate to those around you. Now, that's the first foundation for unity. 
The second is, he says, any comfort from love. I think here he's referring to the very love of Jesus who laid down his life for all those who are in Christ. Within this context, it doesn't say it could be Paul's love for them and their love for him. But I think it's most clearly it's the love of Jesus because later he talks about Jesus' sacrificial love all the way to the cross. So it continues that train of thought. We're to be comforted knowing that we've been unconditionally and infinitely loved by God. 2 Corinthians 5.14 articulates this idea this way. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. What does that mean? Because we've been loved, we now live a certain way. That love frames and controls and constrains us to behave a particular way. The basis for right living, right thinking, is grounded in having been loved by God. The love of Christ compels us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's that entire argument. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel because you've already been loved. You don't have to love in order to earn God's love, but because you've been loved, now live in such a way that reflects your real and true identity. The third thing we see any participation in the Spirit. This word participation is the same word that was used in chapter 1, verse 5, that talks about fellowship or partnership. So the Philippians are not only partners in the gospel with Paul, but they're partners or in fellowship with the very Spirit of God together with one another. So, All those who are in Christ have the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit coursing within their veins. And so Paul's basically saying, remember, we're on the same team. We're wearing the same jerseys. We're we're united by Christ and what he's done. The same spirit that's in you is in me. That's why we shouldn't fight. That's why we shouldn't be divided. That's why we shouldn't be operating out of envy and rivalry and trying to spite others. That's why Yudia and Sintiki ought to get along in chapter 4 because we have the same spirit dwelling within us. So this truth should dismantle any temptation for cliques or divisiveness or grudges. The very same spirit is at work in us. It's like when a parent says to their kids, Stop fighting! We're part of the same family. Or two teammates that need to be reminded. We're on the same team. So stop fighting over the ball. We're trying to get the win together. This is even more true of those who share in the Holy Spirit. Now, the fourth thing we see is any affection and sympathy. The term affection here refers to the inward parts or the bowels. So the seat of the emotions, which we would probably use or say is our hearts. So sympathy could also mean compassion. So Paul's essentially saying, because we have experienced God's kindness and love and compassion and tenderness, and I know you've shown these very things to me and to each other, now let's not tear apart the fabric of love that God has so gloriously weaved together here in the body. So he sets up these four reasons, these motivations for the call that he's going to give in verse 2. So these four foundations are part of Paul's pleading for the Philippians 
to not be divided, to tear down any walls of hostility that they might put up. Be united because we have been united by Christ. So it, this, this would be a little bit like the, the marriage counselor that, you know, gets the couple in their office and, and he says this to them as they're fighting bitterly of, over what house to buy, let's say, for example. And, and he says to the husband, he says, remember how you walked alongside your wife when she battled cancer? And he looks to the wife and he says, remember how you stuck by your husband when he was depressed and unemployed? Stop fighting about the house. Look at how you've loved each other. And here, it's not look at how you've loved each other, but look at how God in Christ has loved you. Look at how great a love you have been loved by. How could you possibly fight with others who share in that same exact love? So these four foundations set the stage for Paul's command that comes in verse 2. In in verse 2, we see the call for unity. So let me read it again with verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So four motivations, and then now he gives, he gives this command with four things he wants to see. He wants them to complete his own joy, Paul's joy, by being of like mind. And so why does Paul appeal to his own personal joy? We had this conversation among the pastors. You know, why would Paul go there? Why would he say it would make me happy? It's essentially him saying it would make me the happiest man alive. It would complete my joy if you would all be united around the gospel and really love one another. Why does Paul do that? I think it's because it shows how important unity is to Paul for the church. He doesn't say, what would complete my joy would be a a warm bed and a hot meal and getting out of prison. Remember, he's writing in prison. He says, "Uh, my my joy, my my great joy, it would complete my joy if you guys would get along. Which shows his pastoral love and care for the Philippians. But he also shows how unity is so, so, so very important. It's so indispensable in the life of a body. This is not just something we can take or leave. Paul's command in 127, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, means if you're divided, you are now no longer living in a manner worthy of the gospel. You're not treating the gospel as something that is true and right and precious. And so be united around the gospel. Why do I say the gospel? Where he says, be of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So these are different ways of saying, have the same goal, have the same way of thinking. And what way of thinking does he want them to have? He wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So have the gospel as your central priority. Be united in advancing the gospel, making disciples, standing firm for Jesus. So Paul wants the Philippians to have the same attitude and goal and heart and mind and that this would expel any selfishness. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ by standing firm and partnering together with those who do. Sometimes there's sports franchises and you hear about the dysfunction that takes place. And what's the dysfunction? Everyone is trying to 
pad their stats because they got a big contract year coming up, a big pile of money in the future, and so they're trying to just get all their stats up, usually in basketball. And it never goes well. But when everyone's selfless, makes the extra pass, doesn't care whether they get the score, if they get the assist, they're just glad if they get the win because they have the same goal in view. And that's what Paul is saying. I want you guys to have the same goal in view. And that's going to get your eyes off of yourself and on to what matters. The gospel of Jesus. The gospel advance. And Paul really wants unity around the gospel. And Jesus did as well. Jesus prayed in John 17 this during his high priestly prayer. He says, Holy Father, keep them talking of his disciples, in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's stunning. Jesus is saying, I want my disciples to be unified just like I and the Father and the Spirit are one, unified, in harmony, have the same goal. He wants us to be unified like the triune God is unified. So this morning, If the Apostle Paul hung around our church for some time, for a few months, what would he see? If Paul watched you, what would he say? Would he praise us for our unity and like-mindedness and togetherness in the gospel, our mutual love and care for each other? Or would he observe gossiping and passive aggressiveness and judgmental attitudes and anger and a people who are easily offended and grudges and those who demand their own way. I would say, examine your own heart. We're we're asking the Spirit to do that work. I imagine that there are some who have disputes with one another. And, And what I prayed in the prayer room earlier was that at the end of today, that there would be no more. That if there's anything unreconciled, and I'm not thinking of anyone specific, if there's anything unreconciled, deal with it today. Are we walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? And I will just say, as one who has pastored here for over five years now, I see so many wonderful, glorious, encouraging things among this body, and I praise God for them. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And, I would say, all the more. Oh, we got more room to grow. All the more. In the midst of this transition, we're going to have all these fresh opportunities to fight or to be united on the greatest thing. And so let's be united around the blood of Jesus. Now, I want to give one word uh, for a moment. Whenever you hear messages on unity, some of us might just think, well, he's just going to tell us all to get along. And so, you know, we should should just do more ecumenical stuff. That means like interdenominational stuff. Just gather with those who think really differently, believe lots of different things, and just work together. Let's just more, let's all just get along. And and that's sort of true and not true as well. Paul issues this call to be united around the gospel of Jesus, but he doesn't do so uncritically. So some divisions are appropriate. For example, if if a church has abandoned biblical sexual ethics or justifies the killing of babies within the womb, and we have churches in the Twin Cities that do exactly those two things, 
we should not partner. And if you attend one of those churches, I doubt you do because you're here, you should leave, right? The same exact Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So Paul is not just wishfully thinking, I wish you guys would all get along. I wish we'd just put away all denominations and different beliefs and that we'd just all be one happy family. I don't think that's what he's doing. There is good and right separation from those who reject biblical teaching. Nick actually mentioned this last week. In 2 John, he says, you should not even show any hospitality. Like you shouldn't greet them with a kiss. You shouldn't invite them in your home. Don't serve them a meal if they advance false teaching. That seems really serious. And he says, the reason is because you're advancing the very same false teaching. You're going to be held to account for that in the same way that if you advance good teaching, you're a partner in that. It's going to be attributed to your account. So what Paul is warning here against is unwarranted disunity. Uh, There's the classic phrase from the 1600s, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. I think that's a good summary at times. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So there's some things that we ought to be united about. There's some things that we're going to be uh, disagreeing on and and we're going to agree to disagree. And in all of it, we ought to be charitable. But I think in in thinking about this, we, we probably need to get into greater specifics. And I can't talk a whole lot about this, but there are a lot of resources on something called theological triage. And I think we've maybe talked about it before, but it's like an ER ER doctor that kind of gets people into the ER and he looks at them and he says, okay, this one needs to go into surgery right away. Otherwise they're going to die. And someone else says, well, you can wait a couple of hours. You know, we're, we're dealing with this guy. And so there's certain things that take different levels of importance or precedence. And so there are first level doctrines that are essential to the gospel itself. Things like the Trinity, the deity of Jesus, and the second coming. There are second level doctrines that are urgent for the health of the church that often cause Christians to separate into different denominations. Things like baptism or church government. And then there's third level doctrines that are important but wouldn't be enough to justify separation. These would be things like your view of the end times or the age of the earth. And yet, as I was wrestling through this, the sad reality is that in most churches, it's not first level, it's not second level, it's not even third level. It's usually fourth level things that we divide over. The worship pastor won't let me sing my solo that I've prepared for. Or, uh, these are all made up Examples. So no one's in view here. Don't get mad at me. These are made up. Uh, Or someone didn't say hi to me in the hallway. The pastor didn't say hi to me in the hallway. He called me by the wrong name again. The drums are too loud every Sunday. Or the choir is too loud every Sunday. Or I hate the new church name. Don't allow disunity and disharmony to creep into Christ's church whom he died for. By his blood, he has united us. German reformer Philip Melanchthon, a contemporary of Martin Luther, mourned the divisions among Protestants, and he told a parable about a war between the wolves and the dogs, and it goes like this. The wolves were somewhat afraid. For the dogs were many and strong, and therefore they sent out a spy to observe them. On his return, the scout said, 
It is true. The dogs are many, but there are not many mastiffs among them. There are dogs of so many sorts, one can hardly count them. As for most of them, he said, they are little dogs, which bark loudly but cannot bite. However, this, not, this did not cheer me so much, said the wolf, as this, that as they came marching on, I observed that they were all snapping right and left at one another. And I could see clearly that though they all hate the wolf, yet each dog hates every other dog with all his heart. Oh, may that not be true of us. I don't think it is. And let's abound in love all the more. Let's stand firm against opponents and then work hard to maintain the unity and the bond of peace that Christ has accomplished by his blood. This leads us to verses three and four. We see the expressions of unity or the the things that Paul would say, this is what it looks like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These two verses are fairly straightforward. Don't operate out of selfish ambition, but instead cultivate the type of humility that shows concern for others. Humility is a key ingredient for unity and mutual care within the church. I find C.S. Lewis on this very helpful. He says, true humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. You catch that? Not thinking less of ourselves. You don't need to tear yourself down, but rather thinking of ourselves less. And, And that's the exact thing that Paul says. Not that your interests don't matter, but also look to the interests of others. Think about advancing the gospel and not just your own ambitions. Don't just think about self-advancement, how you can keep climbing the ladder of reputation or fame or, or recognition, but rather think about how Christ can be advanced and how his name can be exalted and how we can make his name known and great. Selfishness destroys solidarity within a body. The lack of humility ruins harmony. And, and I found this really surprising when I read it. In Galatians 5, Paul lists the works of the flesh, and he says, these things, people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he lists things that we're very comfortable with at times. Sexual morality, sorcery. Those people won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. But right alongside those, he says, rivalries divisions, envy. That should hit us like a ton of bricks. Those who practice rivalries and envy will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Oh, this is so serious for us, brothers and sisters. This is why Paul says, it would complete my joy. It would give me the highest of highs if we would all get along and be united around the gospel and stop fighting amongst ourselves. Because if we fight amongst ourselves, seeking to advance our own way, we may show that we are not ultimately Christians. But rather, we're all about ourselves. So do we labor for unity with fellow believers? Do we consider the interests of others? Next week, In the following passage, we're going to see that selflessness is right at the heart of the gospel because of Jesus.
example. And my mind, in thinking and studying this passage, immediately goes to Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So imagine if we were a church where everyone is in a competition working hard to outdo others in showing honor. Let me see if I can one-up you in calling out all the great things in your life that God is doing. And let me see if I can one-up you and find new ways to encourage you in the Lord. And let me see if I can one-up you and go out of my way to look out for your interests rather than my own. Imagine what a wonderful, amazing, beautiful place that would be. And we get glimpses, tastes of it, and again, all the more, all the more. Let's look back a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, and say, God gave us a supernatural love and unity in the midst of all this transition. And look how he has been so faithful. So, my main point was because we are united to Christ, be gloriously and joyfully and lovingly united with fellow believers around the gospel of Jesus for the glory of God. This is the type of community that would be reflective of our heavenly citizenship, that would be worthy of the gospel of Christ because of what Christ has done in changing and transforming us to look more and more like him. So perhaps this morning, there are some who have never experienced any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. And we would invite you to come and see and receive this good news of what it means to not only be loved by God, but to be welcomed into his family. We want to invite you to come back next week. See the sacrificial work of Jesus on behalf of sinners. We invite you to take your eyes off of yourself and behold the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Even secular studies have shown that those who think less about themselves and think more about the needs of others are happier people. So our, our Thanksgiving drive, our coat drive, is not just so that you would feel bad and feel like, I guess I should do that because the church is telling me. We want it for your joy. Let's be concerned about others so that they would come to know Jesus, that it would awaken in us a fresh evangelistic zeal to make Christ known because we are united by one gospel, one Father, one Lord and Savior, one Spirit, and therefore we are to be of one heart and mind. So let me just share a few encouragements this morning and applications. I think it's already been said, but I think there has been, by God's grace, in these last two years, maybe I would say miraculous unity, miraculous harmony and mutual care in the midst of all that could divide us. And all the more, all the more. There's elections coming up, there's transition coming up. There's all sorts of things where you're going to find disagreement with others. And you say, I can't believe they posted that on their Facebook or that they think that or whatever else it may be. And they are not your enemies because we've been united by the blood of Jesus. And so all the more, let's exhibit the love and unity 
that is befitting and appropriate for the very people of God who have been loved by the infinite love of Jesus. Don't tear apart what Christ has brought together. It's true in marriage. It's true in this body. Second, the church is to be united around Jesus in the advance of his gospel. And so let's prioritize the advance of the gospel both near and far. One tangible example of that. Almost every Sunday, we give some word to unbelievers, those who are visiting, those who might not know Jesus, and we give a little kind of word of encouragement or maybe a summary of the gospel. And if you've been here a while, you could say, oh, there goes the pastor with his spiel again. Or you could take that moment and pray and say, oh God, use that simple truth to save someone in this gathering today. The mature are easily edified. Oh, that we would be mature people that are easily edified and not constantly critical and and nitpicky. And and that's not just to be self-serving, but to say, let's be people who are marked by maturity and a love of the faithful preaching of God's word in every setting. Third, let's encourage others. Uh, I was pointing to the story of in the Pilgrim's Progress, there's part two, Christiana's story. And uh, Christiana and Mercy go to the interpreter's house and they get bathed, they get cleansed, they're given a seal or a mark, and then they're given new clothes to wear, bright, fine, white linen. And Bunyan writes, John Bunyan writes, that they marvel at each other's beauty. And it says this, they could not see that glory each one had in herself, which they could see in each other. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what it means as we continue to grow and mature in Christ. That we think less about ourselves, we think less about, look, look at me, admire me, and we think, oh, look at how you've persevered in that trial. L- look at the evidences of grace. Look at the fruits of the Spirit that are in your life. Look at all the things that God is doing, and we're praising the things in others and less and less concerned about ourselves because we can't see it anymore, because we're so focused on what God is doing in our midst, in the lives of others, and, and we're eager to outdo one another in showing honor. That we are eager and aggressive in identifying spiritual beauty in our fellow brothers and sisters. So what's all this have to do with global focus? This is the second week of global focus. What does this passage have to do with sending people all the way to the ends of the earth? I haven't forgotten about that. This passage calls us to be united in living worthy of the gospel. And part of living worthy of the gospel is being united around the, the singular goal of the Great Commission in advancing this gospel and fulfilling that Great Commission. And so as we seek to embody Philippians 2, 1 to 4, we turn from grudges and infighting and petty disputes face to face, and now we're shoulder to shoulder and side by side, and we say, what's the mission? Where are we going? Who, who needs to hear Jesus? Who do we need to send out? 
Who do we need to disciple to raise up the next generation so that this vision doesn't die? How are we getting after this? Because our concern is less about, I I can't believe you guys changed the color of the carpet, to how do we get the gospel to the places where the gospel is needed? How do we disciple this next generation so that they are, in fact, oaks of righteousness? How do we continue to disciple those around us so that they see the great crying need of the gospel to the very ends of the earth? How do we partner with those who don't have enough funds so that the gospel gets out, so that they are sent in a manner worthy? So we don't pursue unity for unity's sake, but we pursue unity so that we would be a strong body that we would be able to launch out for the glory of God. Like a trampoline where all the springs are pulled taut, then we can truly launch out. And when every member is united around that central goal, that Christ would be exalted in my neighborhood, in my workplace, at my school, in, in my family, among my children, and to the very ends of the earth. So that we'll look beyond our personal interests, and not just to the interests of others, but to the interests of Christ and his kingdom. What is God calling us to do? How might we sacrifice our comfort for the greater good? And so this is a call this morning for 1,200 people to be of one mind and of one heart, advancing the gospel of Jesus, developing a red-hot passion for the glory of God in evangelism, in your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood. We don't just want to send other people overseas to do the things that we're unwilling to do here. There is no sanctification via aviation. As soon as we send you over, then you'll automatically start evangelizing. It begins here, at home, each and every single one of us. And as we do that, God's going to say, look, look at all the spiritual fruit you've borne here, and now I'm calling you out to go do it out there. And everyone else around you is saying, have you ever thought about that? Because I see it. I see it. Every time you talk, I see God doing something in you. So let's eagerly and ambitiously seek to be united in Christ for the fulfillment of this great commission, for our joy and for the glory of God and for the joy of the nations. Let's pray. Father, only you can do that work. So cause your word to land on us with power, encouragement, conviction, And do the work that only you can do. And then raise up a people that loves Christ, loves one another, and that would be a launching pad to the nations. Oh, do that so that many more would be gathered around that throne in that final day and glorify you until you return. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, 
spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.